What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, turning a corner on COVID, Dr. Scott Gottlieb on what's next. I do think that we're going to see pockets of spread, probably not in the fall. It's probably really not going to be until the later winter, maybe December, January, that you start to see enough cases built. And the new work hybrid style. Who wins, who loses, and who's actually going to be working? Staffing agency CEO LaSalle's Tom Gimble. A year ago over the summer when productivity really started to grow, people couldn't go out. Now we're going into a summer of remote work where people can go wherever they want, do whatever they want. Those stories plus the crypto market bouncing back after a week of hell. Regulation could arguably be a good thing long term for all of these cryptocurrencies, right? And maybe that's all we need. And Virgin Galactic, one small step closer to space tourists. So cool. Yep. But Joe Kernan isn't suiting up just yet. You know, still going to pass for a little while, I think. No bungee jumping, no roller coasters, no, uh, definitely not backflips in micro space. It's Monday, May 24th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. The volatility in Bitcoin did not take the weekend off. The cryptocurrency plunging yesterday. It was actually down by about 16%. This was something to set up and pay attention to yesterday morning. Fell just under $32,000, but this morning it is bouncing back. It's up by about 10%, all the way back to above 36000 But this has been something to behold. Uh, these declines, these big moves that come. Um, again, yesterday morning, things were kind of a twist at least on Twitter over all of this. You can see this morning, though, a rebound there. Ether, guys, I think is is trading around 22,000. But remember, Ether was at 4,000 just a few weeks ago. So some incredibly substantial moves. It was the lesser cryptos that really got some pressure put on them yesterday, too. It got this 16 or 17, I think, didn't it? Uh, Ethereum, I think it got all yeah. the way. It, it was way, yep. uh, way down there. Dogecoin hanging in there. Dogecoin back at 31 cents. Yeah. 31 cents. Ethereum was uh, 100 bucks in the last 12 months. So when it was, so when it see, seemed cheap at 2,700 down from 4,100, right. it's all relative, isn't it? I don't. Well, a lot of this though came not just after what happened on Friday in terms of what we heard from China, but additional rumors over the weekend that actually we're going to start seeing some of that implemented. Meaning there were the comments by the Chinese regulators, and then how that was being communicated down to the provinces, and if in fact mining effectively genuinely does get outlawed in China, what does that do and how does that how does that affect this? And I think that was yesterday's event to the extent that it can be explained. I know it's always hard to explain, but you're sort of always looking for little data points. But if you spent some time on some of these Reddit boards or other places, it felt like that was the it was quiet, but that felt like the underlying sort of issue in terms of what we might hear this week. And I don't know what we're going to hear this week. Or we're going to figure something out ourselves, too, what we're going to do, right? $10,000 transfers, things like that. Uh, we already know about taxation. and uh, Regulation could arguably be a good thing right, a long light term touch. for all of these so cryptocurrencies, right? Right. Yeah. It's a light touch, yeah. Well, yeah, because it, it, so. it legitimizes it, right? At least you know the rules of the road. 
right? Right. And maybe that's all we need. Three, two, one, release, release, release. Virgin Galactic completing its first space flight in two years on Saturday. This was pretty cool. The spacecraft VSS Unity was carried up to an altitude of about 44,000 feet by a carrier aircraft, and then it was released. Fire. Fire. You're going to space. Again. It then fired its rocket engines and accelerated to more than three times the speed of sound. It performed a slow backflip in microgravity at the edge of space. This is so cool. There's a sea of uh, Cortez over there. Uh, Silence of space. Yeah. And returned to Earth, landing at the runway of Spaceport America in New Mexico. Now the company has to meet two more FAA milestones to receive a key license for conducting regular space flights. Uh, but if it all happens, we could all be uh, on our on a trip to view space, shares surging over the past few days after the company announced plans for that flight, avoiding a possible maintenance issue that threatened to delay the test. And you're looking at that stock up about 25, 26 percent uh, in after its average trading. We'll see where things uh, begin the day this morning. It Joe? really is like Buck Rogers or something. You know, still going uh, to pass for a little while, I think. Um, you know, no, uh, no, no bungee jumping, no roller coasters, no, uh, definitely not uh, backflips in micro space or whatever you just said. That uh, not, not only <laughs> microgravity is what micro they call it. Microgravity backflips. I, I, no, to be no, honest, no, I don't no. even know what I was saying because I don't know what microgravity is. I know what gravity is. I don't know what microgravity is. Maybe it's once yeah. you get to a specific place, there's a little bit less of it. I'm assuming. Teeny tiny gravity. Little tiny teeny gravity. Exactly. Masa Sun of SoftBank warning of significant dangers around holding the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. In a series of tweets, SoftBank Group CEO expressed bewilderment and concern about the Tokyo Olympics, calling Japan a, quote, vaccine laggard. He said the government's slow inoculation drive less than two months before the start of the games could put people's lives at risk. It's not the first time uh, he's made that warning. Uh, he did it first right here on CNBC on May 12th. I am very much afraid uh, of having Olympics that are not just about Japan, but for the many countries, they're having a, a still big, you know, tough situation. I don't know how they can support sending a threat. And Joe and Becky, the polling in Tokyo right now is getting worse and worse. We're looking at 70, in some cases, over 70 percent of the population in Tokyo saying they don't want to have the Olympics there, that they think it's a danger, that uh, it shouldn't happen, uh, it's dangerous to them, and uh, it's going to be dangerous to the athletes. It's going to be very complicated uh, to pull this off. The IOC, of course, saying that they're going to push ahead. Um, they have lots of different rules in place to try to make it happen and to try to make it happen safely. But part of the, the argument, I think, from a lot of the, the folks in Tokyo proper uh, is to say the amount of energy and resources that's going to be expended on the Olympics, therefore, can't be expended on trying to really deal with uh, COVID uh, the way they would want it to and as fast as they uh, would want it to. But if, this is going to become a very large issue, obviously, in about two months uh, when, when the Olympics yeah, uh, take off, if oh. in fact they do. Japan has fallen behind with their, their vaccinations, um, it has not been as on the forefront in terms of like being one of the countries that have been the most uh, quick at do, getting some of these things done. Um, They're far behind. The other issue is like 
when you look at the Olympics, I, I mean, I think they've taken a ton of measures, as you were mentioning. I believe most, if not all, of the athletes are going to be vaccinated before they come. You're not going to see the same crowds that you've seen in the past. And everybody who comes in is going to be kind of confined to this Olympic bubble where, you know, there, there are restrictions on the movements. It's not going to be free-flowing where you can just come and go as you please. That's very, very true. Um, it's unclear about all of the athletes, obviously, in places like India and other countries. Uh, and then there's questions about variants, whether people can, act, can access some, some, you know, in the United States and lots of other countries, there are plans to, to, to make sure that they're vaccinated. But um, lots, it's, the whole thing is, uh, there's a big question mark over it. So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Of course, uh, NBC, the big broadcasting partner of the Olympics, uh, parent company of this network. So uh, we're all looking forward, uh, hopefully, to the Olympics happening and to the Olympics happening safely. Well, here's the story of the morning. I guess for some of us, your your husband sent me an email, Becky, that said oh, he- Oh, I was watching. He said, yeah. okay, I cried. I admit it, I cried. We he love did. Lefty. We've always, <laughs> he's been, he used to be a friend of the show. He's on the show quite a bit. I've played with him uh, for four days, uh, four days once out at, uh, he wasn't my partner, but he was in my group with, with Brian Gay. Great guy, love him. Just like he seems, you know, it, it never, Stops for everyone along the way in the, in the gallery anyway. Made history, won the PGA Championship at Kiowa they, in the Ocean Course. They say he won. He did. I, I'd say the course won. Best players in the world, uh, six under. And it was not easy for him. And you saw even Brooks Kepka. Uh, he was the oldest player to win a major. He's 50, and he's almost 51. I think he's like 50 in 10 or 11 months. It was his sixth career major, second PGA Championship. Yep, the, yeah, the other PGA one was at Baltusrol, which is in New Jersey. What's interesting is he gets a lot of that exemptions. That was 2005. Right. He gets exemptions to play now uh, in the U.S. Open. Now, Phil, if you remember, at Wingfoot had that tournament won at Wingfoot, the U.S. Open. He has not completed the Grand Slam, which he wants more than anything in the, the career Grand Slam, where you win the Open, uh, the U.S. Open, the PGA, uh, and the Masters. He's won everything right. but, and you know where it is this year? It's at one of he's from La Jolla and it's at Torrey Pines. So he's going to be oh, in there. Wow. I, I guarantee you he wants to win. I guarantee you. But winning a major is not easy, but he's got that old blade putter. And I was battling. Uh, I was thinking about I played over the weekend. It was hot on a really hard course. And I was thinking that's as hard as I want anything to be. No space flights. Uh, there's so many bunkers and so many horrible places where I found myself that that's as that's as scary as I want. Uh, my life to be, I think. But then you know, watching the, it, the crowd was unbelievable. Did you see him at yeah. the end? Uh, weren't you thinking COVID? I did. And how, it was unbelievable. How great it is that we're out. Yes. And how, that's a, you know, that's that's <laughs> yes. sort of what made people cry too. That you can finally get out and mm -hmm. celebrate and just you know, Phil almost looked like he got tackled at one point. Uh, but you know, it, he's so. It, they looked like they almost took his his club away from him. Yeah, but I think he. I think he liked it. He dug it. It's been a long time since it reminded me of years gone by where you saw the crowds following Seve or something like that. It was it's really cool. Really amazing. Tiger. You see trophy. Tiger tweet and, and Phil tweet back to him about I the whole thing that. Tiger was watching. 
Yeah, I wished him some congratulations, and Phil wished back that, you know, said he hopes he gets back on the road to recovery very quickly or something along those lines, yeah. which was nice to see because, you know, watching that, you did wonder how's Tiger feeling about all this. He's got to be watching and just wondering if he's ever going to be able to make a comeback like that given um, the most recent accident. Right. Next on Squawk Pod, COVID case numbers hitting their lowest level in months. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, on the safer world ahead. If we continue to decline like Israel did, at some point in June, we'll be around one case per 100,000 per day. And that's the level that CDC describes as very low transmission. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. The U.S. now reporting fewer than 30,000 daily new COVID cases for the first time in almost a year. This comes as almost half of the entire population has already received at least one shot. Joining us right now to talk more about it is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. His latest op-ed in the Wall Street Journal talks about how the country can better prepare for pandemics by keeping uh, by keeping production plants active. Scott, let's talk first about these numbers. Uh, fewer than 30,000 new cases a day. The, the real reality here is that uh, the situation is probably even better than those numbers suggest, right? I think that's probably right, because there were 13,000 cases yesterday. Now, Sundays are usually slow, but a lot of the cases that we're turning over right now are people who are asymptomatic, um, have mild infection because we're doing a lot of testing and we're doing a lot of at-home testing. So when people have a positive result at home, they'll reflex to a PCR-based test and then they'll get picked up. The thing to look at, I believe, is uh, weekly hospitalizations or daily hospitalizations. And the number of new people being hospitalized for COVID has dropped dramatically. I think that's really a reflection of the fact that the vulnerability of the population has declined substantially, owing largely to vaccination. A lot of the people who are vulnerable to COVID and most likely to get into trouble with it have been vaccinated. So we're seeing the number of new hospitalizations drop dramatically. Now, if you look at overall hospitalizations, they're still high. They're coming down. They're at the lowest point they've been since last March, since really the beginning of this. But they're still high because a lot of that includes people who've been hospitalized for a prolonged period of time from COVID. You think that we're going to be able to lick this or, or are you still concerned that there's a bit of a resurgence in the fall? It feels like there are so many people that are still getting vaccinated. <clears throat> Maybe it's a race between those vaccinations and, and what we see this fall. Yeah, well, we have to um, sort of understand what resurgence looks like. It's unclear what, what that really means. I think there's going to be a resurgence. It doesn't mean that it needs to be a level of spread across the country. That causes us to do major things in terms of shutting down, putting on masks, things like that, closing businesses. I do think that we're going to see pockets of spread. There'll probably be outbreaks in some cities. I think that there'll be efforts to take certain public health precautions, probably not in the fall. It's probably really not going to be until the later winter, maybe December, January, that you start to see enough cases build. I don't think we're going to come back in September and have a lot of cases or even um, October or November. Really, if you look at last year, it wasn't until late November that you started to get a real buildup in cases. And so I think this year is likely to be even 
more quiescent because hopefully we're coming off a summer where there's just not a lot of spread. So really, it's looking towards December and January when cases build. We might have more of a challenge with flu this fall as well because we haven't had a normal flu season in a couple of years now. And so we may have more epidemiological spread of flu. And so the twin risk of both a worse flu season, which is possible, especially if there's a mismatch with the vaccine this year and also some coronavirus spreading, may cause us to have to take certain public health precautions, certainly nothing on the scale of what we've seen in the past. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about what that means for, let's say, elementary school kids who haven't gotten vaccinated yet. It, it, it feels normal when you get outside again on weekends now. Maybe you go to a lacrosse game. Maybe you go to track meet. Maybe you're just out and about. Um, but when the kids come back to school in the fall, are they still going to have to wear masks? I think it's likely to be the case. Yeah, I think a lot of school districts are probably going to start the school year in masks. And, and that's going to be largely out of a sense of uncertainty. It's not going to be because the risk is substantial as they come off the summer into the fall. I think it's going to be because school districts aren't clear what to do. CDC probably is not going to put out very clear guidance. There's nothing they're going to be able to hang their decisions around. Um, but the risk is going to be low. I think the only setting where you might want to contemplate, you know, kids still wearing masks is in confined spaces where they're congregating together in sort of poorly ventilated, stuffy spaces. So that, that describes a lot of classrooms right now. Um, certainly when kids are outside, I don't think they should be wearing masks. CDC is going to need to revise their guidance for camps where they're currently recommending that kids wear masks in camps. I don't think that's prudent. It's likely to cause more problems than it potentially solves. Prevalence is going to get very low. Um, some point in June, we're probably going to get approach one case per 100,000 per day. Right now, we're about at eight cases per 100,000 per day. Hopefully, we'll be at closer to five by the end of this week. It could be that we stall out. But if we continue to decline like Israel did, at some point in June, we'll be around one case per 100,000 per day. And that's the level that CDC describes as very low transmission. Hey, Scott, um, I don't know if you heard us earlier. We were talking about some comments from Masa-san in Tokyo uh, about the Summer Olympics and whether they should go forward. We were talking about some of the polling inside Tokyo about whether it should happen. Um, we are now officially about two months, as of yesterday, two months till uh, the, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. If you were advising the IOC, would you say they should go ahead with the Olympics? Japan's had some challenges rolling out their vaccine. I don't see why they can't create a protective bubble around that environment with a combination of symptom screening, check uh, testing, and trying to vaccinate whoever they can and making sure delegations are as vaccinated as they can be as they come into that into that environment. We've seen other sports venues create protective bubbles around the activity, sports leagues. Now, I recognize the Olympics is on a much larger scale. You have a much more diverse population coming into those venues. But it should be possible to pull this off safely. Hey, Scott, I've heard anecdotally that some of the big centers around uh, New Jersey, some of the, where, where they were doing lots of, uh, of vaccinations, that they actually, they don't need them anymore. They're, they're closing them down. And you can obviously still get uh, the jab at a, a lot of other places, but it's kind of uh, slowing down to a little trickle. But are we above 50? Are, where are we going to, in your view, where are we really going to, to top out? And then what do we do? And how much of that, add that to the people that have already had COVID? And, and do we need to worry again? Or are we at herd immunity at that point? You know, we might get to 60 percent of the population, maybe a little bit better than that by the fall. I think it is going to slow down. We're picking up about maybe two million new people a week right now. It's probably going to slow as prevalence declines, as 
as the risk, per, the perception of risk declines, people are going to say, well, I might as well wait till the fall to get vaccinated. So there'll be a bolus of people in the fall getting vaccinated on um, return to school, return to work. But as we get into the summer, I do think that rates of vaccination are going to are going to decline. Right now, we're picking up a lot because we're vaccinating kids 12 to 15. We've vaccinated about a million of them. We'll probably pick up some more there. Um, we've been sort of flat since the announcement of CDC, where CDC said if you don't, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. I do think flat is uh, better than where we would have been. Um, we're not up, but we're not down. So we're going to see vaccination rates decline. Right now, we're about at 50 percent of the American population. 60 percent of adults have at least one shot. I think, you know, Biden, the president Biden has said, well, he wants to get to 70 percent by July 4th. That's probably a stretch goal. They might just about make it 70 percent of adults by July 4th. So, you know, once we get there, we're getting closer to 60 percent of the public. I think as we get through July and August, we'll pick up a little bit more. And maybe as we get back into the fall, we'll be at around, you know, 60, 65 percent of the public has been vaccinated. Now, you have to layer on to that people who've been infected and infected in prior infection. While it doesn't provide, in our estimation, as good protection against reinfection, it does provide protection against reinfection. So we are getting closer to some semblance of you know, what we would say is herd immunity. I don't think it's going to be true herd immunity when this stops circulating, but it's enough immunity in the population that the rate of transfer is very slow. Scott, two questions. I want to get to your op-ed about how we prevent these pandemics from happening in the future, or at least how we better prepare ourselves to deal with them. But first of all, the the, the reason behind or the, you know, how, how this pandemic started is becoming more and more of an issue. Um, new story out that suggests that there were three people from that Wuhan lab who got very sick. Um, and that kind of lends some credence to the idea that this was man-made. This was created in a lab and, and accidentally got out, not something that happened uh, in nature. Right. And this is consistent with the State Department bulletin that said that there were some illnesses in that lab in the fall. Now we know that three of the people who were, who were sick based on this latest report were actually hospitalized. And the timing of that would put it you know, sufficiently early that it, it could have triggered this epidemic. There's now more and more reporting and more and more analysis that probably the first cases occurred at some point in the sort of October, November timeframe. And so the timing of these infections would put it within within that realm. I think the challenge right now is that the uh, the side of the ledger that supports the thesis that this came from a zoonotic source, from an animal source, hasn't budged. And the side of the ledger that suggests this could have come out of a lab has been continuing to grow. So people a year ago who said, well, this probably came from nature, it's really unlikely it came from a lab. Maybe a year ago, that kind of a statement made a lot of sense because that was the more likely scenario. But we haven't found the intermediate host. We found no evidence of this virus in an animal anywhere. The closest um, homology we found is a pangolin outbreak that occurred in March of 2019. Um, but we haven't found the true source of the virus. And with MERS and SARS, at this point with those outbreaks, those epidemics, we had found the intermediate host. And it's not for lack of trying. There has been an exhaustive search for what the animal host was for this virus, and it hasn't been found. So I think the, the ledger on the side of the lab continues to grow. And the question for a lot of people is going to be, when are too many coincidences too much? When does it just seem that there's too many things suggesting that this could have come out of a lab? Um, and right now, you know, there's more and more circumstantial evidence, certainly. I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of this, because unless we have a whistleblower, mm. assuming it did come out of a lab, and I'm not saying it did, but assuming it did, unless we have a whistleblower, a regime change in China, you're not going to truly find out. If there are retained samples from those people who are infected in that lab, I don't think they're available anymore. 
And Scott, let's get to your op-ed today. This is very important, the idea of what we need to be doing to prepare ourselves for future pandemics. It's not just building up some of these labs and manufacturing capacities. It's making sure that they are continued to be used. Right. The old playbook, and I was around the Bush administration when we started to put this together, was the idea that we would invest in these facilities and effectively mothball them. We'd create what we called a warm base. And so that was the emergent facility, which has gotten into trouble with J&J and AstraZeneca. It was a facility at Texas A&M that does production of cell-based uh, vaccines and also fill finishing that hasn't been used yet in this epidemic. It was a facility in North Carolina that was sold to, um, I believe, the Australians and hasn't been used to produce COVID vaccine either to date. So we created these facilities as sort of this industrial base that could p quickly pivot to produce pandemic vaccines targeted mostly to flu. And they really haven't been consequential during this pandemic. I think what we need to do going forward is not create a warm base, but create a hot base. Basically, create facilities or overbuild current facilities where the government, ba government basically has a call option on the facility. So the government has the ability to go in and say to a company that's currently operating a facility, we're going to take over your facility. So you can either use frozen supply of your active ingredient that you've now frozen in preparation for an emergency, or hopefully you overbuilt your facility and left some extra space. So we need a hot base, not a warm base. Really interesting. Scott, as always, it's good to see you, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? Thanks a lot. Coming up on Squawk Pod, how new is the new normal? Staffing agency LaSalle Network CEO Tom Gimbel says not as new as we thought. If you think about where we were at six months ago, people thought that we'd never be in the office more than 20 or 30 percent of the time, and those populations could live all over. I don't see that happening. More on the hybrid work model right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Becky. Thanks, Andrew. As offices reopen, employees may choose to continue working from home at least part of the time. But the hybrid work model may not offer some of the advantages for all workers. Joining us right now with more on this is Tom Gimbel. He's the founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. And Tom, this is the perfect day to have you here to talk about this. Front page story in The Wall Street Journal today says that some bosses are questioning whether workers who stay at home really have any hustle. What do you think the answer to this question is? It's a long and complicated question. And, and the answer is, is really skills are always going to be the dominant uh, measuring stick. So if you are the best of the best, you're going to be able to do 
what you want, so to speak. And in a very low unemployment rate, like where we're at now, employees are going to have more say. However, if things get into a more standard situation where unemployment is at a, a more traditional level, and if companies stop making the profits that they've been making, which has just been huge, right, after this pent up demand of last year, if they if they get to normalcy, it's going to be an employer-driven market, and then skills value is going to diminish. And what's going to happen is companies are going to say, this is the way it is. Get your butts back in the office. Yeah, I feel like that's already starting to, to kind of play its way out. This summer may be a little bit of a different story, but you hear most offices, at least most offices in New York, and they're looking at, at Labor Day as the day when everybody better be ready to come back to work, right? Exactly. The, the Tuesday after Labor Day, from what I'm talking to CEOs, heads of HR, every single day. And it comes back that at least 60% of the work week will be in office for the majority of employees come the Tuesday after Labor Day. Even if it's only 60%, though, that 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 is a big difference than what we were talking about two years ago. If you have 60% of your days in the office, 40% out, that that's a bit, bit of a big change. And it's probably going to require some uh, massive kind of restructuring for offices, the way you set up your office, the the way you have everything that comes down from when employees are into when the bosses are. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I, I agree with that line of thinking, Becky, from the standpoint of you're still going to want all of your people in the office for that 60 percent. And you're still going to have a percentage of those people hmm. that are going to voluntarily come in on Mondays and Fridays. You're going to have client pitches. You're going to have business units that are uh, dipping and they need to get together more often. So I'm not sure that uh, the office landscape will change. Maybe there's a 10 percent uh, footprint reduction, but I believe that the office space is going to be fairly similar to what it's historically been. If you think about where we were at, where we were at six months ago, people thought that we'd never be in the office more than 20 or 30 percent of the time. And those population could live all over. I don't see that happening. I think I read the article in the journal and at the conference that happened last week and the majority of you know, CEOs get they get bashed a lot. And the ones whose stock prices don't get it, go up and they make millions of dollars. I get it. However, they're paid to have some vision in the future, not just six months, but one, two, three, four, five years into the future. And what they're saying is, is that what we are, are, are seeing down the road is a need for people to work together. And if we asked everybody what they want, they'd want to not exercise and eat ice cream and pizza every day. Leaders have to lead and they have to do what they believe is best for the long term for their employees. That's a pretty paternalistic view, but I, I like what you're saying about the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You think that's when everybody's going to be in the office. That's when you'll see the collaboration. But that's a, that's like a five day weekend almost. Oh, if people aren't working. Now, the biggest challenge that we haven't heard people talk about is a year ago over the summer when productivity really started to grow is that people couldn't go out. You couldn't go to your mm -hmm. Starbucks. You couldn't go to the ball game. You couldn't eat dinner in a restaurant. Now we're going into a summer of remote work where people can go wherever they want, do whatever they want, and we'll see if productivity dips. And if that happens, I think you're going to see five days a week faster than a lot of people envision it. Oh, my gosh. So productivity, you think productivity went up because there's been a lot of us trying to figure out why productivity was so much stronger. You think it was just there was nothing else to do and not that people were taking their jobs super seriously from home? Oh, oh, no. Why do you think those are mutually exclusive? I think that people were taking it very seriously and they had nowhere else to go. But you don't think people will, because this gets kind of the heart of it, that some employers who think if you're out of sight, you're you're not producing. And that, that certainly wasn't the case over the yeah, last that, year. 
a lot of studies have come back and shown that, that employees were more productive than ever. But you don't think that that will last when there are other distractions. Again, that comes back to kind of a, a paternalistic view of things. Well, I am a father of three. What I would tell you is when I look at this <laughs> and I'm an entrepreneur, and I, I, I lead a company of, of okay. 250 folks. But when I when you look at this situation of employees and I talked to uh, two CEOs last week and they said the most ironic thing and maybe not so ironic is that what the past year has shown is how low the productivity level was of remote workers before COVID. Everybody's productivity increased last year. Why is that? Why wasn't it so high for people working remote before? Because there's a lot of dilly-dallying that goes on. Now, I'm not saying, before I get the hate messages, I'm not saying that dilly-dallying only goes on at home. It also goes on in the office with water cooler gossip, longer lunches, people walking around together. However, when you're doing it at work, you're with coworkers, you're building relationships and collaborations, and that's what the CEOs are talking about. We're not having as much innovation and bonding and relationship building when you're doing it at home with your neighbor instead of your coworkers. Tom, I don't disagree with you. I actually happen to completely agree with you. I think that this hybrid life is going to uh, come and go quite quickly. Um, the question I would ask you is, it does seem that there's a very big distinction between sort of New York, Chicago, some big cities, and then the Valley, uh, which has taken a almost remote first approach to life. And I want to say that there has to have been lessons learned during this pandemic, frankly, about how productive people can be uh, from home and the like, and why you think, and maybe it is just a paternalistic thing, maybe it is just uh, the the boss and power. And by the way, I think people will want to be in the office because there's proximity to power has always been a a huge element of it. And you've been a second-class citizen if you're not in that office. But why do you think those lessons, which I thought were very observable even two and three months ago, um, it feels like that is disappearing very, very quickly. Well, we'll let me get to the Valley in two seconds. First, when we're talking about people and where they want to be, human beings by nature tend to be a little judgmental and a little hypocritical. I need my kids in school so they can be with with their students and other students and the teachers and the interaction. Well, you should come to work so you can be with your manager and be with your coworkers. No, 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 no. I'm good enough that I don't need it, right? So we have this paradox. It's really fascinating and interesting and is is a longer piece than this. In Silicon Valley, number one, developers have been able to work remotely for years. That is not a new thing, number one. Number two, when you have startup culture, right, it's about attracting the best talent and having to put that VC money to work as fast as possible. And there's less corporate structure that exists. When we hear people like what Facebook and Apple and those companies wanting to bring people back in the office, that's different than what the startups are doing because they have to put their money to work and they have to get as much talent as they can as fast as they can because the machine isn't fully running yet. Tom, it's great to see you this morning. Always enjoy these conversations. And maybe one of these days we'll have one of these conversations in person again. I look forward to being back with you. Thanks for having me on. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend to subscribe, too. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This 
podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.